Hey, it's Brandon. Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for the download today. We've got a great episode for you. Today's episode is brought to you by Zenium HR. Learn more about Zenium's complete HR plus payroll solution or custom HR solutions at zeniumhr.com. All right, today's guest is a returning one. I'm very excited to have Erica Keswin back on the show. She's out with a new book today called The Retention Revolution. It's an excellent book, and it encourages leaders to reevaluate their strategies on the ongoing war for talent. We've talked about it. Great resignation, all of those buzzwords that have been prominent over the last few years. And Erica's really encouraging us to, to relook at how we're thinking about retention and the fact that we need to embrace flexibility, connection, and keep the doors open for employees, even if they decide to pursue new opportunities. So I think you're going to hear a lot of great insights and a lot of different advice than what you may have heard in terms of retention. So you're going to get a lot out of this episode. I enjoyed my conversation with Erica. Make sure to connect with her on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Enjoy today's episode with Erica Keswin, the author of the brand new book out today called The Retention Revolution. Enjoy. It's a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace again. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. I can't believe it's been almost five years. Like, seems like yesterday. Time flies by, and I'm glad we're doing this. And now we're on video today, so this is even better. And we're going to talk about your new book, The Retention Revolution, Seven Surprising and Very Human Ways to Keep Employees Connected to Your Company. So by the time this episode drops, your book has released the same day. So let's let's start with like the preface of, of the book. You said that during the pandemic, when you were writing this book, the workforce was changing. People demanded to be treated like human beings, like go figure, right? And leaders really had no choice but to listen because people were leaving, uh, you know, through the great resignation. So you said that you were even listening and taking notes and you had written an entire book about bringing your human to work. So what was going through your head at the time as you're seeing all this unfold? So first, I would say that a lot of what happened during the pandemic, the pandemic accelerated some of the trends that I was already seeing in Bring Your Human to Work and in the book about rituals. But all of a sudden, everyone went home, you know, overnight, you know, and was had time to think about, you know, their life and their work and, you know, how they think about these things. And so all of that accelerated these trends. And on the idea of bringing human to work, even leaders who didn't have an inclination to sort of bring who they were to the workplace didn't have a choice. We had dogs in the background. We had kids in the background. We had technology breaking down. We had, you know, loved ones getting sick. So all of a sudden, the, the humanity was sort of flooding to the Zoom or the Teams or, you know, whatever people's video of choice was at the time. And that really shifted and really, as I said before, accelerated this expectation, like, huh, maybe I do want to work for a leader who is more human and can be empathetic and be a little vulnerable. And so that really was, I saw that real time and that was making me want to go deeper and, and kind of study what was going on. 
given the fact that you've been in the people space for 25 plus years and you've written several books, have you seen anything like this situation before with crazy inflation, great resignation, uh, the new normal for how we're working remotely, like all of these things put together? I mean, I know like the remote work is a little bit more normal, but some of these things have happened in the past, but maybe not to this level. So unpack like the time, like, is this unique? I think in my, I mean, I've been in this space for 25 years and I've never experienced a time. I, I think it's a confluence of all of these things because you could say remote work, you know, is new, but you're right. It's not. And there are some companies that have always been remote, right? They've never been in person. So each one of these different things on its own, you could say is not so new, but all of a sudden we had these fluctuations in the economy. We had everybody who didn't even think they could work from home, get a taste of what that was like and start to say, wow, I, I want this flexibility. And by the way, if I don't get it, I'm going to not work. And some people didn't have to work for a while. They had savings. They weren't spending any money because we couldn't go anywhere for two years. So all of it sort of came to a head together. And then another trend that you could overlay on top of that is that, you know, people are living longer and working longer. And some companies have five generations of people working under one roof. And all of a sudden, what you know, Gen Z, then they're beginning to take over the workplace. It's like, you know what? I look at work completely differently and I have options. Oh, and by the way, leaders, if you don't listen to my options, I'm out. So all of this at once caused many companies, if not all the companies that I know and work with to sort of take stock and to say, who do we want to be in this new world of work? And many are, are still figuring it out. It's pretty wild. So I'm on the upper end of like a millennial. And I remember when I first got into the HR space, just everybody talking about millennials and like how they're like changing the workforce and all that. Like think about now you got Gen Z and they're really, they're vocal about what they want. And I think employers are having to listen. Do you think that was magnified during the pandemic about how employers really need to pay attention to what their employees want just because Gen Z is so vocal about it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of the pandemic, but also they're getting older, right? So we've been in this for three and a half years and there are many more Gen Zers in the workplace and getting internships and getting more senior. And based on these generational themes or norms or ge generational generalizations, which yes, they're generalizations, but there's a lot of you know truth to this generation and what they're willing to trade off when it comes to work. I mean, they look at their careers as portfolios. I mean, I was an executive recruiter for a long time and I would get a resume and if somebody had 10 jobs or even five jobs, it was like red flag, red flag. And, and now I think we're going to see these resumes and, and it's just going to be it's going to be par for the course. It's just going to be normal. And that's really what led to the book being called The Retention Revolution. Because what I believe is that in this new world of work, with people coming in with an expectation that they're not going to stay in one place, we need to be really intentional about how we onboard and say who we are as a company, what our values are and what we believe in and how we're going to help you, Brandon, grow and develop while you're there. And on the other end of the spectrum, when you're ready to leave, you know, unless you cheat and steal, you know, the average employee, like, let's try to get our leaders to move away from this idea of you're dead to me and don't let the door hit you in the behind, because if we can stay connected a bunch of things happen. Number one, people have left for greener pastures. You know, they think the grass is greener and it's actually brown and they come back or you become a client or a customer. And so work is becoming much more 
of a virtuous cycle. And, and some of that is predicated upon what people are demanding post-pandemic. And some of it is because all the new people coming into the workplace are just looking at work differently. Yeah. And reading your book, there was a statement that you made that jumped out and it actually goes along with what you just said. It, it actually goes against everything I ever heard about retention before, because I think there's like this scarcity mindset of like employers, we want to keep our people here and, you know, like retain our top talent. But you said in the retention revolution, we transform employee churn into a positive return. The retention revolution means we lean into recognizing the future as an open ecosystem of opportunity, a virtuous cycle, end quote. And it just seems like leaders are going to have to make this paradigm shift with how they're thinking about retention. So how big is this shift in your mind? I think for many people, it's a huge shift. I, I was working on an article the other day about how some of the senior leaders are almost realizing, and I envision them kind of looking themselves in the mirror and saying, oh my gosh, these new associates or these two people, they don't want to be me. And they don't know what to do with that. So, you know, in a law firm, only 30% of, of lawyers coming to law firms today, based on some studies, even have a desire or a goal to be a partner. So what do you do with that information? And my feeling is in the retention revolution, we need to call a spade a spade and lean into it and, and say, all right, if, if I bring in my new class of 100 people and 70 out of 100 don't necessarily see themselves staying or even wanting to be a partner, I need to shift my thinking. And so if we address some of these things early and often kind of from day one or the analogy of like, we're going to date, like we're not going to necessarily get married. And I think if people don't get on this bandwagon, people are leaving anyway. And so the idea behind the book is that if we assume that people aren't going to stay forever, which they likely aren't, you know, if we get over ourselves and be okay with it, and if we're willing to invest in people, even though we're not golden handcuffing them to the desk, which never really worked that well anyway, then people will grow and develop, be engaged and add to your bottom line while they're there. And what we're starting to see is if you do some of these things, not because you expect them to stay or you're tying them to the desk, they end up staying longer because you're treating them like humans. You have managers that are trained and can actually help people, that care about people, that respect people. You give them opportunities to grow and develop. And then when they do decide they leave, you know, you're not saying you're dead to me. So right. it, again, it <laughs> all goes back to this virtuous cycle. Unpack the statement that you made. It was a good one because I hear this like word war for talent all the time. So you said, in the so-called war for talent, everyone loses. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I love that. It's like this image of this tug of war or this pendulum from employer to employee and who has the power. And in my opinion, that doesn't work well for anyone. That I think with increased transparency of what people actually want in their jobs and having open communication and being willing to really even self-reflect and say, you know what, in this moment, you know, these few things are the most important to me in my career. For these people, it's something else um, to try to make work work for everyone. You know, I, I was on a show earlier today where the woman said, you know, one of my top people, she's leaving. But the reason why she's leaving, we had a conversation about it, is that she wants to be in the office and we are remote. You know, she's a young person and she wants, doesn't want to be home by herself all day. So, there, you know, and this company is remote. So there's really sort of nothing you can do in that instance. So it was sort of two people coming together on presumably opposite sides. And, you know, the boss is saying, great, 
you know, I wish you well. If you need any help, let's keep the doors open. You know, we're remote. Uh, maybe there's a project you can do, you know, at some point, but we're going to stay connected. And so that really is the is the future. And again, it's not rocket science, <laughs> but um, it doesn't make it easy because you've got to be intentional to make some of this stuff actually work. When you started writing the book, or maybe even before this idea came about, what inspired you and what did you learn about solving the problem of retention? You know, because a lot of people, like I said, scarcity mindset, they're trying to hold on to their talent, they're a war for talent, whatever. But what did you learn that made you think so differently than most leaders? One of the things, you know, it's fun. I love when I am on a show and I don't know the questions ahead of time because it really is like your brain is turning and surprised. No, and I, I love that. So one of the things I saw and I connected it back to, to Bring Your Human to Work was that all of a sudden during this pandemic, leaders who weren't always the most human and vulnerable and open and, you know, had an ability to connect with people were like they didn't have a choice. We had dogs in the background. We had kids in the background. We had all this stuff going on. And what I began to see in that moment, and this came through some of the surveys and engagement scores that companies were doing, that even in a time when things were so stressful, so much uncertainty about layoffs, engagement in these companies were up and people couldn't believe it. And when we began to kind of peel back the onion and get underneath what was going on, the leader's ability to you know, make connections with people and listen to them and, and ask them you know, what their goals were, what was driving them, how they want to learn and develop. I mean, sometimes depending on your industry, you had no time or some industries you actually had extra time. So people got creative about moving their talent from low demand part of the business to higher demand part of the business, which before the pandemic, you know, you kind of stay in your lane. And, you know, there's a lot of companies that, that if people don't get opportunities to move, they leave. So it was all of these things that, that, that started to happen that I knew were best practices, but I used to have to, um, you know, pull teeth to get people to be even open to them. So in this book, you share seven ways to keep employees connected to your company for the retention revolution. Let's hit a few of the ideas. I want to make sure we're not going too deep and through all seven because I want people to read the book. There's a lot of good stuff in here. And the way you frame up the beginning of each chapter, which is really smart, it's you start with this old idea, whether it's like a myth or whatever, and then you reframe it into a new beginning. So each of these areas there's like a, a shift mentally that we have to go through. So I want to start with onboarding because I think it's so important and such an underrated practice. The old idea is that before the real work begins, or it's that thing that you do before the real work begins. That's the old saying. What's the new beginning with onboarding? You know, the new beginning with, I mean, onboarding is the real work. You know, we used to think that onboarding was, okay, let me give you your computer, tell you where the bathroom is, and here's a key. And if you're remote, like, here's your password. Um, and, And now your real work begins. In the retention revolution, onboarding is so critical. And there's even companies in the book that have what I call pre-onboarding, that time between, you know, I give Brandon an offer to work at my company, but he's not starting for a month. What do we do in that month? And there have been companies that say, depending on, 
you know, there are layoffs happening right now, but the flip side is there's plenty of companies right now that can't find enough people depending on their industry. People are, they're getting ghosted that they hire you and then all of a sudden you don't show up. And so the phrase that I love in this chapter, it's called start as you mean to go onboarding. And so this idea of start as you mean to go on. So the minute that you give someone a job offer, how are you showing up? as a company? How is the manager showing up? How are you living the values? And really, you know, are you connecting this person to a buddy? Are you inviting them to something? And it's much more than, you know, swag is fine. You know, you send a box and people like to open gifts, but it goes well beyond getting a a box of swag. Who should all be involved in the onboarding process? Because I think like a a lot of people think, oh, it's just the HR person. They're just, you know, handing the keys. The more the merrier. Right. So like, then what are all those touch points that that should uh, in the people that should be involved. It's really important is that, you know, the person's direct manager, you want to have somebody, I think, outside of your group that can almost be more of a peer, somebody that you can ask, you know, the dumb questions to when you're coming on. Sometimes companies will connect you to some of the employee resource groups. So, you know, as a woman, I'm like, oh, do you want to, you know, connect with some, you know, women in the group or the millennial group or king parents, like really just trying to get a feel for and connected to a bunch of different parts of the organization so that you can begin really, you know, taking the pulse. One of my favorite stories in the book is from a company that does when they give an offer to this is so it's like pre 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 onboarding. So the person hasn't even accepted the job and they have a celebration when they give the person the offer which is really, really cool. And so they'll say, all right, Brandon, you know, congratulations, we're offering you this job. And then all the, everybody's like, surprise. And all the people that interviewed you are there. And each person goes around and said, you know, I'm excited, Brandon, to have you on the team because I think you really could hit the ground running in this. And here's where I think you can add value. And so you begin to get a feel for the culture, you know, even as part of this process. And of course, this company, they're, yield on on people taking the offers is pretty high how do you onboard somebody and really get to know them whether it's like a hiring manager or even peers try to get to know the people without scaring the shit out of them because i think some people they're introverted and don't necessarily want that invasive relationship quite yet they need to ease into it so how do you like really balance out who i am as a as an employee and i'm just now being onboarding with you know what i truly want yeah. Well, again, sometimes it's it's having these conversations and asking people, you know, what is your work style? Are you an introvert or an extrovert? I mean, you really can start to kind of get to know someone and say, how do you like to be recognized? I have one company in the book that asked that question. And, you know, some people like to be, have it be shouted from the rafters that you're getting some awards. Some people just want a little quiet note. So I think there's this, this realization and you can get to that as training the onboarding group to say, everybody is different. When in doubt, I look to the company's values to say, you know, take a left to the right, take a right. The company values should drive kind of those decisions. So when in doubt, lean on, lean on what your company kind of stands for and and make it a two-way street. When onboarded poorly, how fast can employees really sniff out if this is like not a fit for them? Usually pretty quickly. I mean, what people say, and it's connected to that onboarding because you want to onboard, onboarding can't just end after a day, a week, a month, 
you know, some people is a rule, it's like the 90 day rule, that that's really when you'll have a sense. So you want to keep, you know, if you stop onboarding and connecting with people after a week, the chance of them leaving at that 90 day mark goes way up. And so you want to, you know, have these touch points a month out, you know, six weeks out, two months out. And it ends up being this process of almost re-recruiting. You know, how's it going? Let's remind you why we're so excited that you're here because every week or month that's gone by, this person is more trained and has the potential to add more value to your company. And so you want to lose them less, right? I mean, the goal is to, is to keep them if, if they're a good fit. Another chapter is dedicated to flexibility. I pulled this one out because I think it's so important. And I think a lot of employers are just still not sure what quite to do with this. So the old idea is that employees are only working when you can see them. So what's the new beginning? You know, the new beginning is that we need to really change how we're measuring performance. And flexibility is here to stay. The technology has enabled us. I mean, you and I are on technology right now. So there's, you know, we, we have to find what I call the sweet spot between tech and connect. Let's leverage technology for all of its greatness, but we also have to make sure that we put it in its place. And, you know, one of the, my favorite things I'm going to be speaking about when I have a, you know, a keynote presentation that will go along with the book is, you know, I'm sure if you saw or your listeners saw, you know, back in the middle of the pandemic, the, the the mouse jiggler, which was a lot of the leaders saying, oh, if Brandon's working from home, he's definitely not working. You know, that there's this assumption, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And, you know, what you measure is what you're going to get. So if you want me to just be typing and have keystrokes, you know, that there all of a sudden you could go on Amazon and buy this mouse jiggler, which made your computer mouse move, which made your bosses assume that you were tapping your keys, which doesn't necessarily equate to working. So when we think about flexibility, to make flexibility work, you as at the leaders need to be really clear. What are the expectations? How are we measuring performance? Because if you can't define that, then you can't really make the case for whether or not people, where people should be working. I think connection is like one of the biggest issues when it comes to flexibility. Like it, we have a distributed workforce. It's like we need to use the right tools and have some common connection points and things like that. So how do you suggest employers go about making sure that connection runs through the entire organization so we're not like feeling isolated and, and siloed at home? Yeah. Just wrote this article, maybe we'll put it in the show notes, that looked at the correlation between coming into the office and the loneliness epidemic. You know, the Surgeon General just came out with this 11-page report on the loneliness epidemic. There is a real correlation. And if, again, this sounds so cheesy, but, you know, left to our own devices, we're not connecting. And so one of the things that I saw in the research was that companies now, big and small, are making this connection thing part of someone's job or even hiring somebody in to do it. You know, I call it the connection curators. They all have different names for what the people are, but they don't leave it to chance. So this, you know, it might be the culture team, it might be the HR team, or it might be managers and, and no one even in that function. Sometimes people volunteer to be part of the team that helps to design these experiences for connection. Because what you don't want, and this is the left to our own devices part, is you and I both come into the office and we commute and we're there, but we're not talking to each other all day. And that actually can make the loneliness and the isolation and the frustration 
that much worse. People get pissed. You know, if I'm going to commute in and then nobody from my team is there, or I'm going to commute in and everybody's alone together sitting at their desks. And so we need to reframe what connection at work looks like and almost define the chit chat and the water cooler moments as the work on those days that you're in the office and really be explicit. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into the office for like a team meeting and then the rest of the day I'm on virtual calls. Like how fun is that? Right. And so somebody needs to say, all right, well, maybe there's certain times where we all stack our virtual calls or let's all on our team make a concerted effort that we're going to have these calls on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and Tuesday and Thursday when we're in the office, not all day, but we're having an all hands. We're doing um, a lunch and learn, or we're bringing in a speaker, or we're innovating, or we're doing a strategy session to imagine what the next 12 months could look like. But again, without planning for that and putting real thought into it, it won't happen. And that's why hybrid work is hard. Again, not rocket science. And a lot of companies now are kind of giving up. They're like, you know what? We're going to be fully remote or fully in the office, which for some is four days now and saying, okay, you know, here one day at home, but they just don't have the energy to really try to manage it because it's hard. Another chapter is dedicated to meetings. I'm really curious what you have to say about this. The old idea is that meetings are just what we do, right? We attend meetings back to back and leave us a little space for breaks and things like that. So are you going to just say, let's just do away with meetings that are not important or what's the new beginning there? You know, you know, we've been talking about meetings for so long. Meetings are important. And yes, we need to get rid of the bad meetings, define what those are. We need to go through what I call a purpose protocol, which is like, let's really look at all of the meetings that we have and say, you know, what is the purpose? Chances are, if you do an audit, you'll be able to get rid of 20% of your meetings. You know, the other piece that I talk about in this book are, are protocols, meaning like we have to guide and give the people in our organization help to figure out when should we have a meeting? Could it be an email? And I think these are ongoing conversations. And I don't think a lot of this is new, new, new news, but it gets exacerbated and accelerated with hybrid and with people at home and with all of this uncertainty. And so, you know, there've been a bunch of companies in the news that got rid of all their meetings. I don't think that's realistic. And I don't actually think it's true. Like, I just don't think they're saying that they're doing it. And I don't think yeah, they are. I agree. What are a few basic rules from your standpoint of like how to run a good meeting? You know, I think shorter is better. I think you need to have a clear purpose and what the goals are of the meeting. I think that while I tend to see myself as a very inclusive person, bigger meetings are bad because there's always people that don't need to be there. So, you know, you can sort of address that head on by saying, look, you know, Brandon, if you think you need to be in this meeting, fine, you know, don't feel left out because you were not invited. We are only having people in this meeting that are very critical and specific for this issue, you know, where you can make a blanket statement saying, look, these are our goals as a company. You know, we need to kind of get over ourselves because it just doesn't help. And it really decreases productivity. I do think that with people working from home a lot, the meetings need to be, you know, if it's an hour meeting, it needs to be 50 minutes or 45 minutes to give people a chance to decompress before the next one. If it's a 30 minute meeting, make it 20 because these transitions are brutal. And then, you know, the other, and this is just a manners thing, but you can't be late because everybody's on so many meetings that when you're late, it's this domino effect. And so we really just have to get these things under control. You can run my meetings anytime you want. I love your ideas. Those are good. 
let's touch on one more and then we'll wrap up and let you go. Uh, Managers. The old idea here is that managers are in the messy middle of their career and organization. Uh, They're easily overlooked as well. So what's the new beginning with managers? Well, I'm obsessed with managers and managers are, in my opinion, the MVPs of the retention revolution. Yes. That, you know, the middle might be messy, but the middle really is the center. They are at the center of your organization. They are on the front lines of the retention revolution and their job is really freaking hard right now. And it's always been hard, but it is really hard now because they are the ones that are trying to implement hybrid work. They are the ones that, you know, everybody's coming to them saying, I need an exception. I can't come in on Wednesdays. So leaders need to understand how hard this role is. They need to elevate the role um, that this is something that really matters, that this is something that they need to give managers time to manage and really look at the makeup of their work. And many times they're spending you know, upwards of 50% of their time, if not higher on administrative work. So we need to start really being strategic about that role if you want managers to have time to manage. And the other pieces, we've got to invest in training them and giving them the support that they need. The statement that people leave managers and not jobs, is that truer today than it has been in the past or is it about the same? Oh my gosh. Yes. 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 And yes. I mean, it was one of the well-known, most well-known Gallup studies that was done more true today than ever um, with everything that's gone on over the last couple of years. Yeah. Now, the biggest issue I see, and you, you probably see it as well, is that somebody's so good at their job as a contributor that like the next logical step is to, hey, you get a manager role, but they often aren't prepared, developed, trained on how to become a manager. So what's a, a, an appropriate way that employers can go about training people before they're stepping into these roles? Yeah. Well, and part of it is really looking at this career path thing because, you know, there's something called the Peter Principle, which is where you rise to your level of incompetence. So what I mean by that is, let's say you're this rock star, you're the top salesperson, and then you get promoted and you're the sales manager all of a sudden. And A, you have no idea what you're doing. And B, you don't really want to be a sales manager. You really like sales. So I think we need to kind of put the brakes on this automatic promotion of people into this very critical role and and being clear, like this is what the role is, these are the expectations, and almost saying, look, if you decide you wanna be an individual contributor and stay in that sales role, great. Like we're gonna give you opportunities to grow and to develop. If you decide you wanna go this way, here's how we're gonna help you. But I think in many places, it's almost just this blind, promotion. And then what the Peter principle means is that you ends up rising to your level of incompetence, which is you get promoted to sales manager and you don't get demoted. You don't get promoted because you're not doing well and you're not happy. And so you're just sitting there and it really is not good for anybody. And so really just, just thinking about who should be in the role and then what's the scaffolding and what's the support we can give them. Let's put a bow on this entire conversation. So like if people did and evolved around these seven ideas that you have inside the book. It's the idea that they would create what we talked about earlier, that ecosystem, that that they have a good experience while they're there. They're maybe not going to be there forever. If they are, great, right? But the idea is that they'll leave. You'll have a good reputation because it was a, it was a good experience. They may come back as a boomerang employee. They may refer business and other things. Like, just give us some sense for what can we expect when we do these seven things. 
Yeah. I mean, look, you're exactly right. I mean, one of the chapters that I would even highlight is the chapter from ladders to lily pads, which talks about, you know, there's not as many rungs in the ladder and we need to be creative. And that's creating your own talent ecosystem within your company. We know that people want to grow and develop on the job. And if you don't create opportunities for them to do it inside your company, they're going to leave. And so that really is the, I mean, look, you clearly read the book and did your homework because you summarized perfectly, (laughs) which is you start with this assumption that people may not be there forever. You give them what we know they want, which are trained managers who are empathetic and willing to listen. You give them opportunities to grow and to develop. You figure out what makes sense for your organization around flexibility. You're doing all these things. And if they do decide to leave, you don't close the door forever. And so that really is the magic of it. And I think the train, like we're headed there, whether people kind of agree with this or not. So you might as well get on the train. I'm totally with you. So Erica, your book is called The Retention Revolution, Seven Surprising and Very Human Ways to Keep Employees Connected to Your Company. It's a great book. I I appreciate you writing this book. The book is out right now as this podcast episode drops. Erica, any last words or you want to point people to anything that you're working on besides this book? So yeah, you can check out my website, which is ericakesman.com. And you can see all the different places where I'm speaking. If there are any of the cities that you're in, I would love to hear from people. I guess one other thing I would point to, if, if this was interesting to you, I, I have a number of LinkedIn learning courses. And a lot of times co- companies provide LinkedIn learning. So one is called Human Leadership which I think as of today has had over 36,000 people watch it. So if you want this way to really upskill and elevate you as a human leader, it's 36 minutes, pretty good investment in time. There's a course on onboarding in a remote and hybrid world, which talks a lot about the start as you mean to go on that, that you asked me about. And then two more that I just recorded a week ago, which will be out in October. One is on managers which I think is just, again, so important. And the other is on skills and internal mobility. So, you know, there's now these courses to kind of bring these themes to life. My guest today has been Erica Kaswin. Erica, thanks for being part of the show. Well, thanks for having me back. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on Transform Your Workplace is for general information and educational purposes only. Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.